Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 149, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Recording this show in a lovely warm studio on a freezing cold November night. Yeah, warming our hands on a CRT. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need though, isn't it? It's the time of year when you just want to be indoors, keeping your hand warm on a lovely hot joystick. <laughs> To avoid going all too uh, Dominic Diamond on you there. <laughs> Very Dominic Diamond. You know, I had my uh, CRT uh, out the other day and it was really hot. And the yeah. cat tried to jump on it, but he didn't realise the kind of weight <laughs> on one of those things. And he was like precariously balancing on top. I was just like, get off. And that can't be healthy for a cat lying on the back of a CRT. No, all that burning dust. Yeah, exactly. Radiation <laughs> and everything. Uh, but I mean, we are getting towards the end of 2018. Um, shockingly, I still can't believe how quickly this year has gone by. But we're making plans for 2019 already. Um, we've only got a few episodes left this year now before the big Christmas super quiz. And then next year, actually, something that ties into what we're going to be talking about today, there is a massive Commodore 64 music celebration that's going to be happening. Now, we've kind of covered this from inception right up until now when the tickets have finally gone on sale. Because we had Chris Abbott on talking about it, didn't we, a while ago? Yeah, because initially it was uh, part of... Project Hubbard, but yep. I think it's growing into something now, which is turning into a tribute for musicians as well. And it looks like a fantastic event. I've always wanted to see 8-bit music performed by a symphony, and now the tickets are on sale. So everybody check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes. It looks like a fantastic concert. We're going to be there. Definitely. Yeah, it's going to be happening at Hull City Hall uh, next year, Saturday, 15th of June at 7pm. Uh, tickets are on sale now, so we'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to be there uh, checking out 8-Bit Symphony. It's really good, though, because we had Chris on. I remember at the time, he was like, I really hope this goes ahead and we can make it work. So the fact that now those tickets are on sale and everyone needs to show the support to this. Not only is Rob Hubbard going to be there, a celebration of his music, there's going to be a tribute to Ben Daglish, who, of course, we lost. Yeah, Richard as well. Joseph as well. Now, today's guest as well is also going to feature there. We're going to be joined by... Commodore 64 legend Warren Was Pilkington. Yeah, so if you wanted to get some cheats back in the day, Was was your man. And he'd basically chuck it in. Do you remember the Games Buster section? Yeah, Commodore Format magazine. And um, he'd do tips in Zap 64 as well, wouldn't he? Yeah, and he'd also tell us about all the techniques for kind of poking and hacking and all that action replay stuff and getting into the code and basically finding out how to get stuff like infinite lives and, you know, unlimited ammo, stuff like that. It's obviously a bit later on by the time we got like, to the Mega Drive and that, it was like, you know, left, left, up, down, A, B, C and all that. But back in the 64 days, you had to kind of go into the code of it and then kind of modify it and like work out how the game worked to do little tricks and make the game work in ways that it shouldn't so it's all very interesting and i remember i do remember at school people passing like bits of paper around the copied out of magazines with um different poke codes and all that on there as well that you'd have to type in yeah it's so easy now you just google it don't you and it's there straight away but cheat codes were like you know precious pieces of gold back then <laughs> True. Before the internet, I mean, you'd often hear about them. You wouldn't quite believe it. Oh, surely you can't do that. Yeah. And you'd try to be like, wow, <laughs> I can finally get past that, like, for halfway through level one that I haven't got past yet. Totally. And, uh, you know, was kind of worked through the magazines uh, and he was through many different ones. So he's in Zap 64, yeah. so Commodore format. And he saw the changes in the Commodore scene because there was kind of a, a, a little. Second start with the Commodore, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially when the 90s kind of rolled around, it changed a bit. But even today, I mean, he's massively into Sid music and he's going to be involved in the 8-Bit Symphony as well. So um, it's going to be a really nostalgic one if, uh, you know, you've got a lot of memories about those early Commodore 64 games and the scene in the UK, or maybe from outside the UK. We do get a lot of people who listen abroad and they're always like, um, it's interesting to learn 
what things were like over there because I didn't get to experience it. Totally. And, you know, the C64 was such a big selling computer worldwide. I think it had that title of the uh, biggest selling computer until it got knocked off by a PS2, wasn't it? No, that, the, the the Raspberry Pi, I think. The PS2 wasn't technically a computer. Okay. Uh, then again, you could install Linux on the, the PS2, so mm. some could argue that. But, yeah, I mean, you were right. I mean... If you look at Wikipedia, it still actually lists the Commodore 64 as being the world's biggest selling single model of computer. But I know the Raspberry Pi, I, we did really knocked it off a year or two. Yeah, the amount of Raspberry Pis and drawers. <laughs> in yeah, just in my house, I think I've got more than the <laughs> Commodore 64 ever sold. Uh, but I mean, that is a great legacy, isn't it? Obviously, legendary machine. One for the Commodore 64 fans today. We're going to be joined by C64 legend Warren Walls Pilkington on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, while we're planning ahead for next year, you're going to meet someone you haven't seen for a long time, Matthew Smith. Yeah, this is absolutely crazy. So uh, Matthew was a fantastic programmer for the Spectrum, and he did classic games like Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy. But the whole point of these games is kind of, they had this great British humour yeah. in them, and that's they really showed the British home kind of bedroom programmer. And Matthew, you know, he had a few problems and struggles with kind of being that famous at that time and getting so much money at that time as well and having the pressure to make the new game. So Matthew went missing for a huge amount of years and um, actually an event that my dad did uh, with Paul Jury was called Screenplay and this was in 2005 and that was his first interview of Matthew actually coming out of the wilderness and we'll leave a transcript of it in the show notes. Now Matthew's actually hooked up with Paul Jury again, mm -hmm. and now he's going to come to play Manchester, and he's going to talk all about his legendary story. Because I do remember reading, there used to be a website, didn't there, whereismatthewsmith.com or something? Yeah, yeah, there's a uh, British IBM have actually done a song recently, Where Is Matthew Smith, and yeah. we know where he is, he'll be in Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, you're right, he, he did vanish for so many years, and he was only a kid when those games came out. You know, one of those kind of... You used to read a lot about them at the time, these kind of boy wonders who made these games in their bedroom. Suddenly got a load of attention on them and it kind of must have blown their mind. I mean, you know, they're going to school in the day and then they're kind of like rock stars to everyone at yeah, night. Yeah, and he had some really famous stuff like, you know, he couldn't program, he had to program at night because when his mum turned the kettle on, it would crash the, CC, <laughs> uh, the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Matthew Smith is the first guest that we've confirmed for this massive event that is coming up next year. I know we missed it this year. We had two in Blackpool. But next year, Play Expo makes its big return to Manchester. Now, it's going to be happening. Um, tickets are on sale now. You'll want to book ahead because this one is going to be massive. Manchester Central Exhibition Complex on the 4th and 5th of May 2019. Now, the last time I was there at this venue... I was at a DJ exhibition, and this place was massive. I was warming up for Roger Sanchez. I was on the decks before him. Oh, you're too cool, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I was then. I'm not anymore. Um, the Grandmaster Flash, I remember seeing him there as oh, well. Wicked. This place, I mean, thousands Because it's a there. total new venue, because the older venue, mm. basically quite near the Trafford Centre, yeah. and this one's in the centre of Manchester, so yeah, it's can't much, wait. much bigger place as well, so this is going to be awesome. And, I mean, having Matthew Smith, the Spectrum legend confirmed... As our first guest, I mean, Paul Drury's going to be on stage. We're going to be recording that for the podcast. Um, so having Matthew talk, I mean, it's very rarely he makes public appearances. Very rare, yeah. And hopefully we'll get, yeah, like you said, we'll get him on the podcast. Yeah, so if you want to get your tickets for that, they have just gone on sale and you'll find a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And that is also the same place if you'd like to help us out with the running of the show. Now, every week we do talk about this. We've got a little tip jar on our website. If you like what you hear, I mean, for the cost of like what? 
a cup of coffee, you can help this podcast keep going into 2019 and beyond. Because, I mean, doing a weekly retro gaming podcast, it does take a lot of time up, a lot of resources, even the cost of running it and hosting it and everything. So any help we get with that is really appreciated. And for making a little donation of any amount, you will find your place in the very prestigious Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Kevin Lee. Dean Ripley. David Parrish. And Stuart Brand, who all made donations into the show. And you can do the same. We've got PayPal or cryptocurrency. If you've got any of that kicking about, I know it wasn't the best week for cryptocurrency this week, <laughs> was it? But you might have something you want to get rid of. You can find that right now on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, there has been some pretty exciting Amiga news this week. A classic title that never came out on the Amiga has made an appearance. Yeah, this has been five years in the working. So this is like a huge collaborative project of lots of Amiga programmers, a lot of names that you'll kind of recognise, like uh, Galahad, Hoffman, Mark R. Jones, Code Tapper, Cody Jarrett, Photon, uh, a guy whose name I can't pronounce. (laughs) But yeah, this looks absolutely fantastic. Do you want to tell the story of it, Dan? Well, this is Starquake. Now, Starquake, if you remember, I mean, it often... It's most fondly remembered, I think, on the Spectrum. Yeah. You know, often makes, like, the, the top 20 lists of, like, you know, the best Spectrum games of all time. Uh, it originally came out in 1985 by Stephen Crow. If you haven't played it, it's actually quite a, a mixture of genres. I mean, you've got a bit of arcade action in there, a bit of platformers, a bit of puzzle, that kind of stuff, too. Um, it's kind of got a bit of a space theme going on as well. And it did come out on pretty much all of the major 8-bit platforms back in the day. And then a bit later, it got released on the PC and the Atari ST. Ah, because we know that a lot of ST games were ported over to the Amiga, so this one didn't manage to actually get the port. No, it didn't. I mean, you're right, because a lot of early Amiga games were pretty much straight ST ports with no improvements at all. But Galahad, I mean, we had Galahad on our show, God, right in the early days, one of our earliest episodes, wasn't it? And he was famously part of, like, Fairlight, you know, those famous Amiga piracy groups, but a very good coder as well. Yeah, he helped bring um, Putty Squad back with System 3. Yeah. And even fit that on a CD32, which is impressive. Well, recently, yeah, he's been trying to, you know, help the Amiga community by bringing games that we never got back then. And he's on a bit of a mission to get a lot of these kind of ST-exclusive games or ones that never came out on the Amiga ported over to the Amiga and often with some nice improvements as well, as we see with Starquake. Now, what is really cool about this is it's actually fully sanctioned by the original author, Stephen Crow. That's cool. Yeah, because they've been working on this, and then he found out about it. He's like, okay, what's going on here, boys? (laughs) (laughs) So then they had to check and get proper permission, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as it works out, it's actually worked out for the best, because really they they usually give away the games that they make for free. Mm. But it turned out, because he owns a copyright on it, if you just kind of give it away, it would let them maybe make version two and all that, and you can be giving it's the copyright It sets away. a precedent, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it makes things a bit messy. So what they've agreed to do is, I mean, you can get the ADF version if you want to download it for free, and uh, we'll obviously link you up to that as well. But, so he can get some royalties for it, which, I mean, the guy deserves. He made the game in the first place. They've actually released a physical box version of the game as well. It looks beautiful. Absolutely yeah. stunning. And the reason it does is because, well, Chris Wilkins from uh, Fusion Retro Books is behind it. Ah, nice. And, you know, I'm a big fan of big box Amiga games anyway, so I'm definitely going to be getting this one on my shelf. Yeah, well, this is twenty nine fifty. So about the price that Amiga games were back in the early 90s, you know, the big high-end titles generally yeah, worth yeah. 25, 30 quid. Um, you get a lovely box with it as well. It looks like those old box games. You get the disc in there, um, instruction booklet as well. It's actually quite rare these days to get one of those included. And you also get a postcard signed by Steve Crow as well, badges and coasters and all that included too. And the good thing about this is as well, they've 
really like tweaked up all the sound and everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've got some of the top tracker people on there in the world, and this is just going to be awesome. I can't wait to have it go. Yeah, I don't want to slag the ST off too much, but you know, even though it was used for music, its built in sound chip did leave a bit to be desired. So mm. it's going to be improved over that as well. But what I do love is the fact that it's come out, you know, in time for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice little present, isn't it? Imagine that you could be unwrapping a big box Amiga game under your Christmas tree this year. Oh, the Amiga lover in your household will be happy. Yeah, I mean, there is a... He does say at the moment it runs really well on an Amiga 1200. Um, the 500 version runs a little bit slow, but they are going to be releasing an update that will hopefully fix that in the new year as well. Uh, but it is available now, and of course I'll link that up in this week's show notes too. Now tell us about this... Um, this is quite an interesting little headline I saw. Lion's T. Leo in VR. Yeah, so this is absolutely crazy. It's one of my favourite stories about tech, and it's about, you know, Lion's Tea, the tea company. As in the, yeah, the company that make tea. That's, yeah, yeah. As in you drink. <laughs> yeah, okay. so... I had to double-read that. I was like, really? There's this old philosophy with British companies where they would just do it themselves. They'd just make absolutely everything themselves. So 75 years ago, they created Leo, which was <laughs> electronic office, like Leo the Lion. Right. And this was an automated computer system that would do administrative duties. You know, it would check the stock level. It would do weather forecasts as well. And this is, like, absolutely crazy. It was kind of released in the 40s. Yeah, and this is a classic mainframe. It fills up a room. This thing is huge. Apparently, it occupied 5,000 square feet. Yeah, Larger than two tennis courts. 6,000 valves as well, because it wasn't any capacitors or anything or like pre- that. Or pre-ICs, isn't it? Yeah. Microchips, yeah. So now what they've done is they've actually got a grant, a £100,000 grant from the Heritage, Heritage Lottery Fund. Right. And they're going to be recreating Leo, um, Cambridge University, uh, in VR. Right. So you can basically <laughs> go around this absolute huge mainframe. I don't know if you'll be able to pull valves out or repair it or do a huge giant crazy weather forecast or just smash it up who knows <laughs> <laughs> well i guess if you did in vr you could just reset it yeah yeah <laughs> I, I didn't do it to the real machine you'd be in trouble back then i love this as well they're talking about the fact that one of the reasons that they they made this machine is it could calculate an employee's weekly pay in 1.5 seconds rather than the eight minutes a human took to do the task <laughs> yeah so, and with thirty-five thousand employees it's yeah. uh yeah that pretty much helps and i remember when we went to the cambridge computer museum and they had a few original photos of leo yeah yeah i recommend you uh read a book called electronic brains by mike halley where he talks all about these old systems and stuff like a giant valve computer they built in australia and they had to keep opening the barn doors to get wind to go through it because it was far too hot. <laughs> I do. There is something very sexy about old mainframes. Oh, definitely. Well. Uh, I've been to like, um, I think the Science Museum in London, I was at a few years ago, and they had like um, some of the, you know, the old Cray supercomputers. Yeah. Oh, they look gorgeous. I mean, my mum used to be a mainframe operator in the 70s. Now there's pictures of her like working on, um, she had a main, mainframe called Dora that used to be like a calculator machine that calculated all the council tax and stuff or whatever it was back then. Well, you need to get her on VR into Leo <laughs> and she might be able to do something yeah, cool. She, I remember how all this works, yeah. <laughs> putting the punch cards in and everything. <laughs> she can't use an iPad though, but yeah, she could probably do that. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, we'll keep you up to date on that when that opens. That's something we've definitely got to check out. And again, that's a unique use of VR. Oh, total unique, you know, bringing you an experience that you never have, also taking you totally back to the beginnings of computing. Now, if we're talking about big things that are coming up, 
want to sit down before I break the news to you. There are only five weekends left until Christmas now. Oh, my God. I'm, I think I'm going to buy all my stuff in America and then come back with a really heavy bag. <laughs> <laughs> buy one of their mainframes when you're out there yeah. and they're back on the plane. Uh, something that might be uh, slightly more convenient to put on your Christmas wish list, though. A very cool new handheld called the Retro Stone. Yeah, this has come out and it looks really nice, actually. Um, they've got a nice review of it on Engadget. And yeah. this is a lot different to what you usually get so usually you have a a raspberry pi or you have kind of an orange pi or there's some kind of arduino or something arduino like there's something that's built around this this is actually a custom single board computer it looks like a game boy yeah it looks like a game boy i suppose the d-pad's supposed to be really nice and it's supposed to have a good feel but it's also got like four usb ports on it it's uh, got micro sd and it's really capable it's got a much more powerful cpu so if you're going to be emulating stuff like retro pi you can actually run it on this system oh, so retro pi will run on it yeah oh, yeah okay. you can run linux on it so you could even turn it into a mini kind of pc and have a linux installed with a bluetooth keyboard if you wanted that is really cool and looking at the buttons on it as well i mean the d-pad does look very nice uh and the buttons actually remind me of the snares so it's got a bit of that kind of Nintendo heritage in there as well. Uh, but they're showing it running loads of different systems. So essentially, this could be like an all-in-one emulator in your pocket. Yeah, totally. And it also has 26 GPIO ports available. So you could put any breakout stuff on there, any mad adapters you want. So this is fully like moddable. Um, you can also hook it up to your TV because it has a HDMI output. It does look nice. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people I know have got like you said, either custom Raspberry Pis in little cases yeah. uh, that need powering, or I've got a friend of mine who uses an LPSP modded, you know, for emulation, that kind of thing, which is pretty yeah. cool. But having a dedicated new device to it as well. well. Well, they're saying, actually, the screen size is quite small, but it's a lot sharper than the PSP. It's got a bit of a price tag with it, 135 to $148. Slightly pricey, but I guess if it is a custom unit... And, you know, making these, um, getting the screens and the parts and everything, getting the case designed, it does all add up, I guess, when you're doing, like, limited runs of them. Yeah, and you've got three colour options as well, grey, red and clear blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, clear red and clear blue. And it just looks really nice. I think if you want something that you could take around that's, you know, you could even have Cody installed on there and you can watch movies on the train on it. <laughs> or you could start doing some operating system stuff. But also just beautiful for gaming. I find a lot of the time with those little Raspberry Pi ones, they're kind of 3D printed or they just feel a bit tacky and kind of, you know, like they're going to break after you have a good gaming session. <laughs> so it might be worth forking out the extra one for this retro stone. I've heard very good things. Yeah, the only thing you might struggle with is finding the uh, Nintendo games now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, finding the ROMs. You have to find all the ROMs yourself. And yeah. it's literally like you put it in there, you create the image and then put it on. Tweet Ravi, he'll tell you how. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get into our final story then. Um, not one to get sued by Nintendo. Of course, yeah, we don't endorse that. Right. Um, but there is something Nintendo have been rumoured to be doing and we all expected it to happen. And we all wanted it to happen. And now apparently it's not. Yeah, here's us excitedly reporting on patents being filed and uh, fake pictures and stuff about the N64 Mini, but it's not going to happen. You're not going to have one in your Christmas stocking. Well, at least not anytime soon, it seems. Now, um, this is a little article on uh, Kotaku. They've been talking to Nintendo of America president Reggie Philome. Uh, he's reported that apparently there are no plans currently to release a N64 Mini. Now, the reason is, and this kind of makes sense, I said when they brought out the the first two classic consoles, they were just meant to be kind of limited releases to essentially 
appease Nintendo fans during that really awkward bridge between the Wii U and the Switch. So they had hardware and stuff to buy for Christmas mm. that year between them. Yeah. So apparently that was like the strategic thinking, you know, behind bringing out the just the next give classic. them something. Yeah, keep them sweet, essentially. But now it turns out, he said, um, they'd never rule out making a Nintendo 64 classic, but I can tell you that it certainly is not on our planning horizon at the moment. Yeah, I think the thing about that is the Nintendo classic and stuff, they completely sold out everywhere. Yeah. And Nintendo did their standard thing of not stocking enough stuff. Um if they did it again, I don't think it's a it's a stopgap between the other ones. I think you know it's a it's a whole other range and a whole yeah. other area that they can do. But uh, that's their decision, I guess. But it is interesting that again, yeah, they did register the trademarks for the N sixty four controller. So maybe there are some other kind of plans. But mm. I'm sure Nintendo at the moment would rather you went out and bought a Switch and paid them the. The 20 quid a year to and, buy the and, online and, service. Yeah, bought it off the online service. That's how they really want to do it, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, they could do an N64 USB controller that you could plug into the Switch for the you know the few that might yeah, want to use that again. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I never liked the N- Nintendo 64 controller. It, it, I don't think it's aged very well. If I, I only liked it for Goldeneye. That was the yeah. only game it was good on. <laughs> and, and Super Mario 64, I mean, it was made for that game. Oh, yeah, I didn't play that much. Yeah. I, was, it, I think my mate could only afford Goldeneye, so it was the one game that we played. But, I mean, that, that could be another issue, I think. Maybe people that haven't played an N64 for a long time or a new audience, it might take them a bit to get their head around that controller. I, I guess people were wanting the N64 Mini so much because N64 emulation is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, that could be another stopgap maybe that at the moment maybe it's not kind of economically viable for them to make a, a cheap little all-in-one they unit. They put so make. much research into it and, you know... Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Would the, the current hardware run an N64? Because, I mean, the SNES Mini and the NES Mini are the same hardware, essentially. So whether that could actually run an N64 and they'd have to code an emulator that would work really well, too, yeah. which takes up resources. Now, I mean, to be fair, if they are going to do that, you'd think they'd probably rather just develop that for the Switch It's going to have more powerful hardware yeah, yeah. and they can charge you again for the games, which is always Do a good. virtual console or something like yeah, that. I think that is probably what is going to happen now. But, uh, I mean, that's the thing for me. I mean, there's, these mini consoles are coming out every week and we're talking about them all the time. I haven't got any of them. No, no, I, I, I've not even played on many. I've played for the first time uh, with Chris Folds on a mini at the Alt lounge, Alt gaming lounge, and that okay. was quite good. It was the mini... Uh, Nas. Yeah, well, I played one, I think we are out on Joe Stagdo last year. And yeah, it was a cool little system, but I've got an original NES and I've got an N64 with flashcards and all that. So, I mean, you know, we're not probably the target audience for it, so I'm not going to lose sleep out of the fact there's probably not going to be N64 mini soon, but I know some people have been a bit heartbroken. But if we hear anything different, you'll be the first to know. Right then, well, thank you for checking out the news this week. We'll have more next Friday. Right now, let's get into... Commodore 64, hacking games, poking, peeking, and magazines like Zap 64, Commodore format, with this week's special guest, Warren Was Pilkington. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event. This week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Warren Was Pilkington. How you doing, Warren? I'm doing very well, and um, thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem at all. Pleasure to have you on. Now, um, before we get into some stories about, you know, Commodore Former and uh, games cheats as well that we need to talk about in just a bit, where did it all kind of begin for you? I mean, do you remember your first ever experience with games or a computer? Yeah, so probably early 80s, like most people, they had access to an Atari 2600. Um, my uncle actually had the wood grain one. 
and then I picked up a junior when that came out. So um, started to sort of play a bit on that, um, realizing that you know you didn't have much memory to play with. But what made it what made it fun was the games were playable. So you'd always go back to certain ones that would just have that one more go factor. So a couple of years down the line, and I end up getting a Commodore Plus Four for Christmas. So that was also an opportunity to try and learn a bit about programming as well as playing the odd game as well. At the time, quite a few retailers were sort of selling off the Plus Four for like 80, 90 pounds, which compared to the price for Commodore 64 at the time was a lot cheaper. So it was a bit more accessible, easy to get hold of. There were a fair amount of games already out there that had been programmed mainly with the C16 in mind as well as the Plus Four. I learned a fair bit of um, sort of basic programming on that, but also um, because the Plus Four had an inbuilt machine code monitor, you could sort of look at um, how some of the games worked. Yeah, that was what I had a Plus Four as well. Um, I think I probably got my Plus Four probably around the same time you did when there was like some fire sale on and they were selling them off really cheap. It seemed like every kid at school suddenly got a Commodore Plus Four that year. I mean, what, what kind of titles do you remember on that? I remember stuff like Fire Ant and Bridgehead I used to love on there, and those Sean Southern games were brilliant too, like Speed King. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all the Sean Southern ones were brilliant. I mean, people, for example, may not realise that Trailblazer was written for the C16 first before, obviously, the 64 version was, was ultimately really, really good as well. Um, the version of Kickstart that he did is actually much different to the 64 version. It's more of a time trial against the clock with a number of lives and still really, really playable. Yeah, I think they actually um, ported that to the 64, like a fan project a couple of years ago, actually. Yeah, somebody did that. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it looks like the 16 version. Awesome. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, obviously, the, most of them had the 10-pack um, of Commodore games, hence Fire Ant, um, the Plus Four only ones like Icicle Works, Treasure Island, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the Mastertronic cheapies were where people sort of would could get their sort of fix of sort of um, cheap entertaining gaming. Big Mac, Video Meanies, Mr. Puniverse, The Adventures of Fingers Malone, and the often forgotten Oblido, which was a great puzzle game for the C16 only and never really got full attention, but it was a great game. Before the internet, was it kind of hard to find cheats and tips? How, how would you guys share them usually? Um, it depends on how you'd play through the game. If you had somebody who was playing through the same game at the same time, they may have worked out how to get past a certain level. So if you went around to their house, they'd be like, oh, I've got past this level, and here's how I did it. And you think, oh, that's how they did it, okay. But in terms of actually working out things like cheats, obviously you could press the Commodore key and the reset button and you were into the machine code monitor and you'd also reset the game. So the first thing you had to work out was how to get back into the game after you'd sort of looked at some of the code. But also you'd try and work out um, some of the basics. So, for example, how many lives did you start with, say, four, five? Was any memory locations being set to that at the start of the game? Could you track that? Could you find if, say, that number of lives has been decreased at any point? Maybe what you would do is change the instruction that reduced the lives, find a way of restarting the game, play it, see what happened. And if you managed to do that and you were having infinite lives, you could then play through the game a bit further, um, which was always quite nice to sort of try out. So you were kind of poking around and looking for these little cheats hidden inside the code then? You, you would do occasionally, only if the game was kind of getting to a point of frustration, because obviously a lot of the games at the time 
Um, the difficulty level was pretty fair for most of them, but some of them were really hard. So you spent a lot of time thinking, well, hang on, how can you make this a bit easier? How can you make this less frustrating and maybe even get some more longevity out of the game? Did you hear any rumours when you were a kid about, about a cheat that was kind of like impossible and would never work? I always heard there was like, you know, the nude Lara Croft cheat or something like that. <laughs> was, there, was there a C++4 uh, version? <laughs> I don't think there was. I mean, really, only Commodore user at the time gave the C16 any amount of you know, decent coverage. And as a result, people would often send any sort of pokes and um, they'd found for Infinite Lives to there. And obviously, with the game, have, with the plus four having an inbuilt reset switch, as did the 16, obviously, at least you could sort of like reset the game and then obviously type in your poke, put the code in to restart the game, and off you went. Um, I ended up sort of learning quite a bit in terms of some of the sort of code and instructions and ended up with about 25 plus um, pokes for Infinite Lives. Um, sent them off to Commodore user and they never got published. But it was not a case of being deterred. It was a case of, well, you learn from that experience. You learn how um, you manage to get to that point of finding, of finding pokes from there. And, you know, even now, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of re-inherited a plus four many years later. And a lot of the games that I enjoyed playing back then are still enjoyable now. Some of the pokes that I managed to find now were still probably ones I found 30 years ago and still work. So it's quite nice to sort of go back almost to that and, you know, enjoy some of those old games um, as well. Yeah, when I learned you could do that, you know, going into the machine code and then putting like a poke code in and then like finding the sys code, wasn't it, to get back into the game as well. But now and there is a website called Plus Four World that has them all like listed on there, which is quite useful if, uh, if, if you're anything like me and your gameplay dexterity is not quite what it was when you were a kid. They are quite yeah, I've actually got a good story about Plus Four World. Um, a while ago, um, I approached them. This is, I think, back 2003, 2004-ish. Because um, one of one of many great Sean Southern games on the C16 and plus four was Tutti Fruity, um, which was great fun. You know, you'd basically be super strawberry, um, giving the acid apples um, what they deserved, um, a taste of their own medicine. And it was just a catchy little game, great, great little um, title tune. So I redid a version of the title tune on the 64 and basically approached me and said, you know, if um, you have the sort of SID plugin enabled, you can hear the title tune um, on the game page. And they actually did that for some time as well. So you loaded the game page up on plus four of two, three, and my version of the um, theme music played on there. Nice. So that was quite nice. Um, but, you know, that was just, just an enjoyable piece of fun for me to do because I went back and thought, I remember this tune. It was just enjoyable to do. Well, people kind of forget how important a resource a magazine was at the time. Like, um, what were your favourite magazines and what were your favourite kind of things to read in them? Um, obviously, at the time of, of owning the Plus Four, first of all, I mean, Commodore User was probably the main one because they tended to support it the most. And obviously, Zap64 being legendary for its 64 stuff. And as um, I moved on to a 64, then obviously Zap became... Um, the sort of the one that you would buy each month. You'd enjoy the features on the games. You'd even enjoy the game challenge features, the tip sections, all that stuff. And it just made you enjoy what you did. You know, you, did, you didn't think that playing games were such a 
geeky thing to do. It was it was what a lot of people were doing, and a lot of people were getting a lot of enjoyment out of. Um, obviously, as the 64 moved into the 90s and Commodore Format was launched, that really took over the mantle from Zap uh, in a way that I didn't think Zap and their publishers quite expected. They stuck with the 64 till the mid-90s, which you wouldn't have expected them to, t- to sort of last so long with. And then after that, obviously, some of the fanzines um, kicked in and they sort of kept things going for a fair number of years. And, you know, there's still magazines now, um, whether they be electronic or whether they be in sort of print form, um, that are sort of really carrying on that work and sort of, you know, keeping um, the 64 very active. I'd, I'd probably say, actually, more active in the last few years than than the last five years before it. Well, getting back to the, um, you know, Zap 64 days, obviously that had a tip section run by um, Robin Hogg. How did you get involved in that then? Well, um, back in the sort of um, mid-80s era of Zap, um, obviously Julian Rignall did it for years and he was obviously really good he was a good gamer anyway he knew his stuff but obviously it made sense for him to sort of do that because he would have a sanity check on you know what tips would work if I was playing it what would I do sort of mid-88 uh, Newsfield had a sort of complete change of staff around and quite a few of them sort of moved on to other things so it ended up being I think Paul Glancy taking over the tip section so I'd already tried to contribute some stuff before, but I thought I'll send some stuff into him. And he published, I think, my first sort of set of sort of tips in the odd poke, I think in September 1988. And a couple of months later, I did a realm of tips for um, Summer Olympiad. That got uh, me tips for the month in November 88. And I did a fair bit um, over the next sort of six months for a year or so for him even though real world stuff such as work was slightly starting to take over a little bit, I always had my hand in sort of doing stuff. And sort of late 1990, early 1991, um, Robin Hogg was doing the tip section then. I'd sort of improved my craft of sort of doing some pokes on the 64. I'd had an action replay cartridge for a couple of years and I'd acquired a disk drive as well. So it was quite nice to be able to sort of do more stuff with it. And then gradually, sort of send some sort of um, pokes, cheats, listing pokes, etc. to him. And he was quite happy and was wanted, you know, wanted more. Because I think you could see that, you know, there weren't that many people around that, um, or, say, moved on to other formats. And would regularly keep in touch, um, either by postal mail or by phone, He'd sometimes um, try and get some games sent over to me so I could sort of do listing cheats for them and send them back. Um, so that was quite nice. It just meant that I was able to um, do quite a bit there until sort of Newsfield folded in late 91. So it was a really good productive time. Robin was 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 really, really good. Uh, we'd regularly have quite a number of chats on the phone and stuff. And he was just really supportive. Um, he was always trying to sort of encourage different things. Um, he was probably the one, more than anyone, for sort of zap tips, particularly, that wanted more different types of cheats. For example, listing pokes where you could extract the music out and play the music from a game. Did you get uh, any letters or kind of readers' tips, you know, sent through? Also, did you get anybody, you know, saying that cheating's quite immoral and you guys shouldn't be doing it? Because I know there was a lot of kind of Mary Whitehouse attitude at the time. Um, not necessarily for sort of cheating, because I think people got to the point where they'd played a game so far and could never get sort of beyond 
level, yeah. say, four or five, and they wanted to get a bit further. And if they could sort of play through it with infinite lives and still play the game normally, but have that sort of insurance that they weren't going to sort of die on an impossible level later on, it just meant that they could sort of learn how to play it and then gradually try and then play it without a cheat and sort of, you know, be better at the game, so to speak. And I think people generally weren't, um, they wouldn't necessarily write um, to me necessarily. They would maybe sort of write into Zap and and sort of um, one of the things that Robin was quite keen on was that people were often requesting tips or pokes for games and if they didn't have that, you know, what could they do? So in a way, Commodore Format kind of preempted that a little bit because obviously in their sections, in their tip section, they did actually have a Samaritan's Corner, as it was first called, where people would basically send in their requests and then and that they would often get fulfilled. And I think that was nice to have that kind of actually, we'll give you all the new stuff that you might want to um, do pokes for, but at the same time, give you the old stuff, you know, that you might have forgotten and gone, oh, I've played this game for a bit, but I need to sort of get through a bit further. Yeah, it's kind of like an early uh, consultation zone. Like, I used to love those letters to magazines and reading people, uh, kind of needing support and then remembering, you know, oh my gosh, I've got that game as well. <laughs> That's how we can resolve that. Well, exactly. I think that, you know, you, 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 a game would come out and it would be an event when, when that game came out, particularly if it was one that was being eagerly awaited for some time. Um, Last Ninja 2, I think, was pretty much a case in point on that. And, you know, I had two or three friends that all bought the game the same time as me, and we're all playing it. And, you know, we, we all got towards, the I think, the end of level one, and one of us worked out, hang on a minute, you've got to go to that screen and sort of use the staff on the boat to make the boat come round the other screen to jump across to level two. But because it wasn't obvious, and you were there trying to think, oh, where can I go, what can I do? You just ended up listening to Matt Gray's superb Central Park soundtrack for hours <laughs> trying to work out work out what was going on. Obviously not a bad thing because it's a great soundtrack, but you were still like, what do I do? And then obviously working that out, you're like, right, okay. And then obviously progressing through the game. And it was that kind of, if you had friends that were, were, were basically playing the same game or they'd be around at your house playing the same game. You really had that sense of, oh, let's let's work out what we're going to do and get through that. And it was it was quite enjoyable. And I think now when you look at um, retro gaming events in general or um, events that museums have where they have plenty of games on and people sort of play them, you know, straight away, if someone starts doing decently at a game, everyone's like, oh, what are they doing? How did I, you know, I never got past this level. And it's that kind of real sort of shared enjoyment. Did you ever give new games like kind of a grace period before you published like cheats for them i mean would you leave it a few months if a big new game had come out for example often um it would actually depend on the person writing the tip section because obviously you couldn't necessarily buy all the games at once because it was you know there were quite a few games coming out and you couldn't necessarily afford them all um i do remember i think playing through rainbow islands for about a week or so and actually mapping the whole game out and sending it to Robin Hogg in about um, a week or so, week or so afterwards. And I think had they got to him in time for the publishing deadline, he may have may have published them over two, three issues. But rather than necessarily being a cheat, it was actually more about mapping the game out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the time, I was still sort of crafting some of the sort of listing pokes to a degree. So. A lot of the stuff I was doing was wasn't necessarily on all the new releases. It was actually going back to some of the older ones and working out how they worked. And if, say, a listing sheet hadn't been published for that, 
it was often quite nice to submit them. So people have gone, oh, I, for- I forgot this game lying in a cupboard somewhere. Oh, hang on, I can have enough of it lives now. So it's quite nice to sort of do that. I mean, generally for um, the likes of Commodore format and like Commodore Zone, there was a cover mount with games on it. And normally um, there would be someone who would want want you to try and sort of get sort of the listing cheats for that, possibly for the next issue. So those are the only ones where you really kind of experience any time pressure to try and get that out. So by the time the next issue would come out, obviously people had a month to play the game. So normally it was reasonably long enough um, for people to do that. With new releases, often the review would be, say, a couple of weeks before the game came out. So I think generally those in charge of tip sections were always a little bit kind of reticent to publish stuff straight away anyway. Mm. Well, did you ever get any feedback off developers and um, publishers like who maybe didn't want you to give away their secrets, as it were? I think the only one I remember vividly was probably from Stephen John Rowlands, probably at the time of either Creatures 2 or Mayhem in Monsterland. Um, obviously, um, Andy Roberts went sort of moved to move down with them when they were developing Mayhem. And obviously, he was my main contact for stuff at Commodore Format. I basically dealt with him directly. I didn't have to go through any of the editorial people at Commodore Format. So it was quite enjoyable when I'm sort of browsing through um, one of the games with the Action Replay cartridge and it had a message saying, this is a message for me. Uh, we knew you'd look in here, you predictable so-and-so signed the boys. <laughs> Um, so that 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 was that was quite fun. I thought, well, fair dues. I'll I'll give them that. You know, I, I took it in good humour because I thought, well, that's just that's just nice to see. Um, but it was also in in a in a nice sort of affectionate way, sort of their recognition that, that the fact that I'd sort of go through um, sort of the game. Ironically, the last laugh was a little bit on me um, because of a well-known bug in Mayhem in Monsterland um, on first release where if you had, say, 10 or more lives and you lost a life when you went from 10 down to nine lives, it actually went from 10 to zero. Um, So I ended up conducting a listing poke to correct that for the game. Well, you mentioned action replay cartridges there as well. I mean, was that kind of a bit of a game changer? Yeah, so, I mean, the the two main cartridges that people had uh, were basically the Trilogic Expert cartridge and Data Electronics' action replay cartridge. They both worked in a similar way as in, as in that they both had a machine code monitor, which was obviously missing from the 64 uh, by default. And they also had the relevant freeze button, so you could basically freeze the game state, examine the code at the time, restart the game, etc. Obviously, people also use them for backups of games, and they maybe would be doing um, copying, etc., spreading those copies around. Um, but usually their kind of reason for freezing the game was necessarily mainly for your own backup, not to sort of, you know, be copying 20, 30 copies of the latest game on mass. But because they both had machine code monitors and they were both very competent at being able to look at that code and examine it, it also meant that you could actually um, see how the game was um, loading as well. So you could look at the loading system, so you could freeze a game during loading and see how that loader code was working. So you'd sort of look at it and go, okay, I can intercept the code here and put my bit of code here to sort of say, right, I want to put something else to make sure that when the game loads, I can um, give it infinite lives before the game starts. But I think in terms of being able to work out uh, relevant sort of pokes for games, 
it did mean that often you weren't having to construct your own paperclip type reset switch and risk blowing your 64 up or buying a cartridge based reset switch first. Um, you know, we, either way, you wouldn't have a machine code monitor to then sort of delve into it. And at least with freezing it, if, say, the game took up um, some of the memory consumed by the 64's normal screen, if you reset it, you wouldn't get back into the game. Whereas if you froze it and then restarted it, you know, that, that code would remain intact. So there were, there were, there were game changes for mainly for that reason, because it just made it a bit easier to go, go looking at examining code. Well, I read in another interview that you had mentioned about music hacks. So uh, could you tell us what they are and kind of how they worked? Yeah, so it was it was one of the things that Robin Hogg really sort of um, wanted people to do a bit more of because even in the late 80s, early 90s, people were still big fans of the SID chip and fans of the soundtracks. And often you'd play through the game and the soundtrack may play, but you may also, for example, have had like, say, the sound effects playing with it and you wanted to hear the tune on its own. Sometimes... Um, the game would have a hidden machine code routine that you could just put an SYS code in, music played, off you went, all good. On other occasions, you'd have to basically construct a small listing poke that basically just set up a machine code interrupt to initialize the, the game music and then play under interrupt. Um, it was basically sort of that straightforward. Um, but people kind of um, liked that or didn't like it, depending on sort of um, their viewpoint. Um, some liked them liked it because they could sort of hear the music outside of the game with no sound effects and enjoy it. Others were like, well, it's a bit pointless. I just want infinite lives. But it was something that basically was more sort of late Zap era than any other sort of magazine that I sort of did tips for. But actually doing that, doing sort of some of that music hacking back then, just looking at the whole sort of code of the game, was probably a precursor to sort of hacking out sort of chunks of code um, for later on for sort of ripping sort of set music out as well. I mean, talking of Commodore format and like that transition from Zap into Commodore format, I did think it was quite interesting when that magazine launched because it kind of did feel like the, the 64 got a bit of a second lease of life around then, uh, maybe just because we were a bit more affordable by the time the 90s rolled around. I mean, what did you kind of see? Did you notice that transition period and what was it like going from Zap to Commodore format? Yeah, I think at the time, I mean, obviously sort of, 1991 time was my main sort of bulk of stuff for Robin Hogg at Zap, but obviously I was aware that Commodore format was around and doing pretty well. I think the main thing was that a lot of publishers thought, you know, someone's launching a magazine, there's still a fan base out there. And some publishers may, may have even wanted to move on to 16-bit computers earlier, but probably stuck with the 64 for another two or three years based on the fact that there was competition in the magazine press, you know. You'd had you'd had you'd have two or three outlets to get your get your adverts in, get your games reviewed, have people submit tips and stuff like that. And you know, there was still a healthy fan base. People were still buying the machines, obviously, but there was still a um, a hardcore who was sticking with it because they knew that that was the machine that they grew up with. Um, when Zap um, basically um, was starting to go a bit downhill in terms of content. Um, you know, there was the whole collapse of Newsfield and the buyout by Europress Impact as a publisher. So there was a sort of a, a month or two where Zap didn't appear on the shelves. And at that time, I um, submitted a number of um, sort of listing sheets and pokes to Commodore Format. And Andy Dyer, 
was the person in charge of the tips at the time. And a week or so later, I had a um, letter from Andy Roberts, and he'd actually started just about starting take over um, the tips section. And he was quite keen to have me on board. Um, they'd already acquired the services of Martin Pugh, who was the main other sort of um, tips cheats person at the time. And he was very, very good at what he does. And it was nice that basically he could sort of look at a second person on board who could sort of share some of that workload, but also be able to have the outlet where if people were getting stuck, you know, there were people they could go to and rely on. Um, I remember about a month or so after, and Andy had sort of given me fair warning of this, there was a phone call from one of the sort of um, higher uh, management of future basically sort of requesting that I sort of work exclusively for them in terms of contributions. And I didn't mind doing that uh, primarily because in the later Zap Tips era, uh, Mark Caswell um, particularly, a lot of the listings were screwed up in Zap. And that didn't make me particularly happy because everyone would then say, oh, this doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it was actually a lot of the time um, incorrectly transposed. Most of the time I'd be submitting a disc with the listings on. So effectively all you had to basically do was here's the listing, output that to text, off you go. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't particularly difficult. And I think one, one of the great things about Andy was that he would meticulously check that kind of thing. And, you know, we'd have, he'd have the same submission, but he would make sure that they would be published correctly. And that obviously gave you a bit of confidence knowing that that was going to happen right. How did the multi-hack program work and uh, what did it do? There were various ones that I wrote over time. Um, there was one for a later Mastertronic loading system, which was um, Invader Load or Load and Play. Um, Invader Load basically had Space Invaders playing while the game loaded with Rob Hubbard's One Man and His Droid music. And Load and Play was the Phantom of the Asteroids music by Rob Hubbard with, with a different type of game playing. Both of those use the same loading system throughout. So you'd look at the loading system code and it was the same. So you'd be looking thinking, well, if I've got a master listing that's basically going to inject my code into the loader and go, okay, I'm changing this, I'm changing this. Right, when the game loads, I want to do this and get infinite lives. It was easier to have a master listing that basically had all the bits up to the bit where you wanted to cheat on a particular game and then add a data line for the game afterwards um, to do that. Um, and learning that one probably led me on um, to probably the most famous one that I did, which was Codemasters Multi-Hack Simulator, an obvious nod to um, every Codemasters game at the time being called Simulator of some form of description. <laughs> you know, you had SAS Combat Simulator. I mean, come on. That was sort of stretching the artistic license a bit. In the last sort of newsfield issue of Zap, um, I asked Zap to sort of print my address. So if people wanted sort of listing of listings, pokes, etc., could they could sort of write to me. And that actually got quite a bit of feedback from people that wanted to write and say, oh, can you give me a listing poke for this game? Often I'd have the game or have the poke ready. I could send them off they went. In other cases, they would send me the game. Now, as it turned out for the Codemasters multi-hack simulator, this was actually quite useful because somebody actually sent me about 40 games in a massive bundle. And I went my way through that. And it was sort of, at that time, I was thinking, well, these are all the same loader. 
So constructed my master listing, worked on some data lines, off I went. And it ended up being the case that actually not only did Codemasters games use that loading system, but a lot of the earlier Mastertronic games, and I think also some games by Zeppelin as well, they all use the same loader. So it was actually easier to have that done so that rather than having 100 listing pokes to type out, you would have one with a data line that you needed to add. So in a lot of cases, such as the Codemasters one, you'd basically just be saying, right, okay, here's the command to change the border color, perfect opportunity to go and put my own code in and it would constantly do that throughout loading to make sure that the relevant data was overwritten while the game loaded. I was just thinking then about, um, obviously none of us were involved in this, I'm sure, but um, I do remember certain tapes floating around the school playground when um, you'd load them up and you'd get some quite fancy colours and stuff at the start, uh, cracked rows and trainers, um, you know, pressing spacebar a few times, then run stop. I mean, did they kind of work in that same way as well then, like trainers for games? Um, Often what they would basically do is they would look at the game... Um, as a whole and extract all the game code out and obviously once that was extracted out they'd find space in memory to have a little message to say do you want infinite lives do you want infinite time that kind of thing and obviously you'd press YRN and then press fire start whatever and they would just jump into the game code um, often um, because they would be able to use um, some programs that would compress the memory to a degree that often left them enough memory to have some little some little whizzy graphics as an introduction with some music playing. So from their point of view, um, they could sort of bundle it all into one, have all the cheats in there, and often if it was like, say, a tape or disc game that was hard to get a hold of, they would obviously put it onto discs, spread it amongst friends and amongst, amongst um, their contacts, and people would have contacts that they would sort of basically swap with so they'd get more games. Most of it tended to be on disc rather than tape, so it was mainly more disc users where that would be visible and you'd have to have contacts around who who would be able to sort of get hold of those. Um, more more often, if you had sort of a CompuNet modem or you were logging into sort of some bulletin board systems, you were more likely to obtain that, although mail swapping was also a thing for a lot of people as well. Yeah, I think the UK scene kept the uh, jiffy bag industry alive for many years, didn't it? probably did actually <laughs> well thinking back on those days I mean have you kind of like got one tip cheat or code that you were really really proud of finding guess some of the multi-hack ones were probably a sort of good moment if only because I, you know you could do one listing and basically add a few lines to each each time and I think in the end I think the Codemasters multi-hack simulator had something like 130 data lines which is a lot of games for sort of like you know one hack so to speak um, in terms of an individual game rather than a multi-hack, probably there was a listing I did for, I think, Creatures 1, um, where you basically had free weapons, free lives. There's about five or six different cheats within Creatures, and I ended up doing both um, the disc version and the tape version of that over time. So that was quite nice to do as a sort of like extended um, sort of listing for people. The disc one was quite large because of the loading system used and also all the cheats that were in there. But, you know, that was that was quite enjoyable for people. I think people quite liked that as well. You know, I think in that time as well when Creatures came out, and you mentioned um, Mayhem in Monsterland as well, it seemed like the Commodore 64 programmers were really, really getting to grips with the system. And it's, it's kind of a shame in some ways that not a lot of people probably played those later games who were into the 64 earlier. I mean, I was, I was at a show last year when... 
a guy who hadn't played a 64 for about 20 years. I sat him down in front of Mayhem in Monster and his jaw dropped. It was like, you couldn't believe the 64 was capable of that. I think as well, because a lot of um, programmers um, later got involved in things like the demo scene and were basically still showing how much the system could be pushed to its limits. I think some of the things that people looked at in demos and learned from, they were starting to translate in game code. Um, particularly, I think some of the full screen stuff that was going on in terms of scrolling and stuff like that, some of those tricks you could utilize in games as well, provided your you, you coding was adequate. And obviously that just meant that overall presentation looked a lot nicer. You could go for more bright, brighter colors. You could even mix colors in real time to make it look like more than 16 colors. And it was just a really good time you know you had things like sprite multiplexing i mean anyone who's ever played turrican 2 will know the size of the monsters in that mm. you know smoothly scrolling no issues no hassle and you're thinking you know someone's put a bit of time into this well with the kind of modern revival of the c64 have you been uh, finding yourself poking any modern games um not particularly um primarily because i think now Although there are a few nice games coming out, and it's always nice to play them, um, a lot of the time they're either electronically um, distributed or they're on cartridge. You know, you do get the occasional tape as well, and you know, it's, it would be quite nice to sort of go back in time in a way and sort of go to sort of loading the tape and sort of finding out the old cheats again. I'll probably have to refresh the memory a bit, but um, you know, that would that would be quite good to do, but. I think for general um, people, you know, they may find a version within two or three months that gives them that kind of lives thing anyway, or they may have, or someone may have found a poke somewhere and shared it online. You know, it's not as that, it's not necessarily as long a wait as it would have been in the days of magazines now. Well, recently we had Chris Abbott on, and he kind of helped work on the high voltage collection. And uh, you seem to have a passion for Sid and. How did this come about? How did you get involved with the uh, high voltage collection? I think that kind of stems back quite a time because obviously I'd always been a fan of the Sid Chip anyway. So, you know, being a fan instantly meant that you had something that you cared about. And doing the sort of listing pokes for Zap was basically, um, for the music, for example, was a, was a good sort of way of learning some of the code, learning to do it. And, you know, I started composing on the 64 myself. So, it was it was knowing sort of how that kind of side worked, what you'd be looking for in a music routine, and and how easy could you extract that out if need be. So, um, sort of mid nineteen ninety seven when I sort of got online, I'd sort of noticed the high voltage Sid collection in its sort of one year old form and thought, yeah, this this is this has got a lot of promise. You know, people are sort of extracting out the old tunes from games, making them playable. Um, people might not have a 64s before and they've got an instant kick of nostalgia. And I did note in, early on there was quite a bit that was like not so great. So some of the credits were incorrect. Um, some of the tunes were bugged, etc. So it was nice to sort of contribute quite a bit initially. And, and then, you know, after a while, um, the guys basically said, Do you want to become part of the team? Um, which is very flattering. So I spent a good five and a half years in total uh, being a full-time member of the team, of which I'd say four, four and a half of which was actually being the main administrator and sort of looking at that. So not only would I necessarily be um, extracting a lot of the game and demo things myself, you know, I'd be consulting with the team, they'd be, they'd be getting stuff in, 
people will be talking to the composers, sort of getting the real story from them, finding out a lot about um, how the industry worked by speaking to them and realizing that sometimes they didn't always get the credit for the tunes that they deserved. Mm -hmm. And also, in some cases, if, say, the game itself was bugged on mastering or if there was a problem and someone was able to sort of work out how, how the tune worked and was able to fix it, I think for a lot of people, sort of giving giving it, giving something back to the composers that they'd been fans of for so long was a really nice thing to do. Um, I think at the time... Um, the last V8, the first, I think, Mad Game, um, that infamously had a high number of copies where the music bugged out after about a minute or so. That Rob Hubbard soundtrack, wasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. the one, yeah. Um, and interestingly, the 1 to 8 version of the game has different speech from the 64, because I did buy the 1 to 8 only version and then realised it didn't work. But I was able to transfer it and load it on a 1 to 8 emulator and hear the speech that way. But the, um, it turned out that during mastering, um, they overwrote seven bytes of music data, and that was enough to corrupt the, game, corrupt the music. Oh, wow. And what I was able to work out was, well, it might not have been corrupt during the game loading, so let's, let's try and freeze the, freeze the game with an action replay cartridge during about three quarters of the load, see what happens. Turned out that it was sort of late on in loading that those particular bytes got overwritten by game code. So we're able to extract it cleanly out and have something nice and working, which is always sort of nice to sort of give back. Well, I know there's been a lot of buzz on the 64 scene recently about this um, 8-bit symphony that's coming up as well. So tell us a bit about this. Yeah, um, I think, to be honest, it's always been um, a dream of Chris Abbott to get um, an orchestral gig. I think because a lot of the sort of um, musicians you know some of them were classically trained and obviously early um, tunes on games were often classical pieces um, and obviously people would also later on do orchestral versions of their favorite sid tunes so in a way it was kind of not surprising um, that something like that would be announced and obviously tickets have now gone on sale for that so i suspect there will be a pretty decent take of that will be interesting to see is who actually does come as well in terms of not necessarily the musicians, but, you know, how many fans think, actually, that'd be great to hear in a concert hall um, of a reasonable size. Certainly, I know that, you know, having a dream fulfilled is always a good thing. And, you know, I think people will sort of appreciate that for what it is. And I think over over the years where there's been other sort of back-in-time live events where, you know, you've had musicians really sort of play... Um, great versions of the, of the old tunes on different equipment you know it will be a very different experience to sort of what's gone before and i know um it was very sad news when ben daglish passed away in the last couple of months and there's going to be tribute to ben there as well isn't there i would have thought so i mean and richard joseph as well yeah. i mean people you know he died of cancer a, f a fair few years ago um, as well so it's, it's obviously nice to sort of remember him and in fact uh, Anthony Lees who was also the co-composer of the Last Ninja soundtrack mm -hmm. so you know there's, there's plenty of people to remember definitely I think because Ben is, is was, was a recent thing and it was obviously um, quite a surprise to a lot of people you know because I think some people knew he wasn't 100% but 
you know, maybe everyone didn't realise how bad it was. And I think, you know, Ben was always the life and soul of any event. You know, he, he would go full into it and be really like, ah, you know, really to enjoy himself. And he was great for that. You know, as a compare, he would be the one getting the crowd going. He'd get his flute out, start playing, and everyone would be like, Wee! and he, he would sort of warm everyone up really nicely. And I think the one thing that I think people will miss will be that just that just that just whole sense of fun that he had, you know. Um, for me as a fan, I would say um, there was a few uh, of Ben's tunes that were in games that maybe didn't sell as well or weren't as popular. And to extract those out and sort of you know, drop an email to him and say, is this one of yours? And, and to say, actually, yeah, it is. I didn't realise that the, the publisher had actually published that. Um, you know, those kind of giving things back to people who you were fans of was always a real kind of nice way of, of, of offering that payback for people. Um, I remember, this is a great story or two, that um, a few years back, Ben actually gave away a couple of his 64s um, to raise money for charity. So he'd actually... Um, had an open auction on the Lemon website and me and another 64 fan uh, were the highest bidders. So I remember going to a primary school near Glossop where Ben was in a band called Cold Flame at the time and he was rehearsing with them. He said, come along, watch us rehearse and you could see me in full Jeffro Tull mode, which, you know, fine, that's what he did. And we then later sort of had lunch and um, he sort of signed the 64s as well. So I've got one, someone else has got the other. Um, and obviously they're kept safe and lovingly preserved, as you'd expect. And obviously for me, sort of Ben sort of passing away sort of hit me that way thinking, you know, I probably I could probably fire up that 64, listen to some of the tunes and think this was, you know, this was the one. Uh, that he made certain songs on. Yeah. Uh, I do know that the other one that he that he gave away at the time was one of the ones he used for Trap. So the other person who ha- who who had that um, will um, obviously be able to sort of play that in sort of real time as he sort of composed it. Um, a few years back for the C64 Takeaway podcast, I actually did some recordings from uh, Ben 64 that I have, and they were sort of played on there sort of as you know as from the original equipment which was obviously quite nice to do as well well it's it's good that it's got into um you know somebody's going to look after it into a nice safe pair of hands thank you well i mean i i still occasionally use it and do play games on it as well mm-hmm. um but what's quite nice is is that the um the sit chip on that one is quite heavy um i did a recording a few years ago of the tune from light force by rob hubbard and because that's quite heavily filtered anyway uh, the, 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 the particular 64 Ben had, the filter was really heavy. So there's parts where the filter just goes into overdrive and actually cuts out in terms of the music because it's just the filter is that heavy. And I did a sort of side-by-side comparison with my own 64, and it was like, oh, yeah, actually, you can tell the filter difference straight off. So it was quite an interesting thing to do. Um, but certainly, you know, I... Um, have so many sort of good memories of some of of some of the composers um a fair number of which i'd sort of got in touch with at either events or through hvc or whatever um i remember um salvaging a couple of fred gray tunes uh, with fred um which was which was really sort of nice to do 
I think one of them basically didn't restart properly. And Ben, basically, um, sorry, Fred said to me, if you fix this, you can put this into HVSC. So that's, that was my incentive <laughs> straight off, you know. Um, so I managed to do that, and he was really pleased. And he was like, yeah, we're good to go. Um, but, you know, Fred's a particularly great guy as well. Um, he was often underrated because of people just saw a lot of his um, soundtracks as particularly bouncy and cheery, you know, when that was one of his trademarks. But, you know, you play Mutants and that, like, soundtrack, you're like, that's really good. And it was atmospheric and it was brilliant. And it was... It was a sign that you know you, you gave a composer a bit more free will to do stuff, and they would really churn out some cracking stuff. Well, Warren, it's great to hear that you know you've still got the passion for the C64, and long may the scene continue. And if people want to uh, come along to the 8-Bit Symphony concert, it's going to be happening next June, the uh, the 15th of June 2019. We'll put links to the tickets in our show notes at theretrohour.com as well. Uh, Warren, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Lee, and a pleasure to you both as well. Uh, one final little story, actually, um, sure. before before we sort of wrap this up. Um, recently, um, I managed to resolve a long-standing issue with a Martin Walker tune um, from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. It's an article that I wrote recently for the Commodore Format magazine. Um, it turned out that um, the same music and the same um, sort of sequence and data, etc., was actually used on the Amstrad version. So it actually worked out that one of the sets of sequences for one of the voice on the 64 was bugged and the code had been overwritten. Looked at the Amstrad version, saw it was the same code, brought it over, finally got a fully working 64 version. So I'd sent the article to the guys at Commodore Format and the fixed um, SID tune, which will be the next SVC update. And Neil Grayson of Commodore Format He's, um, fan, uh, the website he sent it over to Martin Walker Martin Walker was not only really pleased that someone had done a salvation job which was in my view job done but he'd also mentioned that actually um, someone must have reverse engineered his 64 driver and ported it to the Amstrad and he actually had no knowledge of that happening so to actually find that out from him and have that sort of payback for sort of being able to give some back to him was really nice as well. So it's really good that when you when you're able to sort of give something back like that, that it really feels rewarding, but also nice to find out something you may not have known um, from the 8-bit scene as well. And, you know, that's why even now the people who, who sort of look after HVC now are still as passionate I will still contribute the odd rip pack from now, from from occasions with 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 sort of Sid tunes from old games in that maybe people have overlooked. So I still have a hand in occasionally, but it's just nice to sort of contribute occasionally and and you know do my little bit. Well, we'll uh, we'll put links to all these in our show notes that we're talking about here, including um, Neil Grayson's brilliant Commodore format. Um, it's like a fan site, but there's a lot of the old stuff and, and new articles that are coming out all the time on there as well. So the 64 scene's very alive, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I might even have to write an article about multi, the multi-hack in more technical detail. Um, that might be quite an interesting one for people to read how it all works and actually um, why it works as well. Um, so that may, be, that may be something I might try and sort of look at on the horizon because I know that... I think Andy Roberts is quite interested in that, so it might be it might be sort of one to sort of look at in the future as well. Oh, there you go. You've, um, you've committed to it now. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but I, I think I will because I think I look back at the old code and thought, ah, I remember it all now. It's, you know, when you you look at stuff and you think it's all coming back to me. It's all it all it's all working the same. Um, you know, 
maybe I should attribute sort of like a David Darling quote, you know, sort of best multi-hack ever. You know, <laughs> the, the back of those Codemasters games with all those really over-the-top quotes that they had at the time, you know, like, wow, outstanding graphics, best game ever, that kind of thing. Well, Warren, it's been awesome catching up with you. Um, thanks so much for uh, all the reminiscing and, and the new stuff as well. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next year at the, uh, the Symphony concert. Absolutely looking forward to it. Oh, 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 oh